You are listening to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host, the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. And this show is all about the most interesting interviews in an enormous archive covering pop music's history from the 1950s to the present day. But it all comes courtesy of my pal here, Tom Jokic. Well, thank you for saying that they're the most interesting because, trust me, I listen to all of them. (laughs) And they are not all the most interesting interviews, right? Yeah. Every once in a while, you'll go, oh, a whole interview with Dr. Hook. (laughs) And you're going, yeah. Yeah. And then you listen to it. And and you go, okay, well, that's fine. Although, there is a very good Dr. Hook clip. And it's very we, brief, too. It's very brief, and it is good, and we'll, we'll play that one day, one day. You know what I find very interesting, Christopher, is that a lot of the interviews from the early 80s, the new wave acts, um, the ones from England, they are almost, like, impossible to listen to. They're so dull. That's interesting. I don't, honestly, I don't even know how to categorize it, and to probably categorize it would be unfair to them. But they are almost monosyllabic and so unenergetic in terms of uh, how they uh, relate to the interviewer and how they relate to their own music. And so some of those, I, are that, I think that era is a little bit underrepresented because of that because I just kind of go, man, I, I cannot play this on the air. It's just dull. Is that because they've been catapulted to fame by look and the video era and hence there was not as much emphasis on content? I actually think... It's a little bit of a post-punk attitude. Ah. Uh, That's what I think I'm too cool for all of this? I, kind of, yeah. And yeah. I'm not interested in this. I'm not interested in, in hyping my music for your radio station or to the, right. to the media or to the man or whatever. Um, I, <laughs> the man. I, I, I think that they didn't want to be part of it, and they just wanted to make their music. And remember, a lot of them were geeks who were, at this point, um, you know, locking themselves in a studio with their keyboards. And probably hadn't played a lot in public, right? Like they were. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, as I think about this, I had a handful of those bands to deal with, and um, yeah, there was there was some eye rolling going on on their part, and it was just like, oh, this is so tiresome. Yes, and they were not the only ones rolling their eyes. You know, as an interviewer, you're kind of going, oh, dude, like. Try to be at least a little bit interesting. Work with me on yes. this thing. <laughs> now, yeah. one of the people who was always a great interview, always a great gentleman, and always a great musician, so eager to play, and it became part of his downfall, was Phil Collins. Mm-hmm. Right? Phil, at this time, in this interview that we're going to feature today, um, I'm guessing uh, early 80s, maybe around 1982, right. was full-on up to his neck in projects, whether it's his solo work, his side projects, or Genesis, or working with Robert Plant. We'll talk all about that. So that's yet to come on this edition of Famous Lost Words. Hey, Tom, what else have we got this week? We have a really fun 1997 chat with the Foo Fighters in the much music environment. You're familiar with the drill. Big band comes into the building, and the fans gather outside for hours, and then they go absolutely crazy when the band shows up. It's hard to keep it all together, but the enthusiasm is half the fun, and the band, including the incredibly likable Dave Grohl, is definitely enjoying the moment. Come in the air 
Oh, those booming drums on In the Air tonight. That's <laughs> Phil Collins from Face Value 1981 on Famous Lost Words. Well, there were a lot of drum machines on there, too, but that's yes, another story. That's right. So, Tom, at the time of this interview, Phil Collins had a resume to last a lifetime that he seemed to be building on daily. With a red-hot solo career and his work with Genesis as the mainstays, he managed to work in side gigs with people like, oh, Robert Plant, <laughs> Anna Fried from ABBA and a few others. Well, when you put together his work as a solo artist, band member, and sideman, ready for this? Collins had more top 40 Billboard hits than any other artist of the decade. Really? Yeah. Safe to say, Phil owned the 80s. Mm-hmm. And when you meet him, he doesn't radiate stardom, nope. you know, like a plant or a jagger. I agree. But he gets the respect that he deserves as a working man's musician and is a hugely successful artist. Hmm. I would like so, to argue with that just a little bit. The lack of respect issue? I don't think he gets the respect he deserves. Oh, as a musician? As a musician, I, I just think that because of his fall from grace, and it all had to do with the ubiquitousness of him mm. in the 80s, leading into the early 90s, maybe not even lasting that long, to the point where there was a backlash against him, and then he became... Um, disrespected in a very, very big way by the end of the 80s, I think. And I think that he has not fully come back from that, and I think that's undeserved, and I think he belongs in the pantheon of great musicians and also one of the great guys in music history. Well, you know, I'm thinking about this because when you achieve success on the level that he did, Mm. or say a Peter Frampton did in the previous decade... Yes. Um... It's almost like you get too big for your britches in the eyes of the public. Yes. They put you there. Exactly. And then they want to slice you and cut you down. Yes. And there's old Phil again, right? And we'll he- yeah. We'll hear that in a few minutes when he's talking about all the things that he's doing. Okay. So, an interesting aspect for, for me anyway about Phil is that he managed somehow to wear his musical influences proudly on his sleeve while maintaining his originality. So, to start off this interview from the early 80s, Phil talks about his main influences. Motown and Stax and Atlantic, uh, as well as obviously the Beatles and what was going on in England at the time, made such a big impression on me. I mean, I was I was really learning to play the drums properly then. I'd been playing since I was five, but it was when I was about 15, 16 that all this was happening. And um, I really, you know, it's, it's what I grew up with. And uh, I still find the magic of that sound, you know, the 60s sound, which a lot of people are trying to get today. And I think, mm-hmm. I think the police... And contrary to what a lot of people would think, Genesis are are still doing 60s, uh, you know, material of that that period. No real surprise there. Phil has always been clear about those influences, especially the Motown one. Well, he's clear about a lot of things. So listen mm-hmm. to this amazing dissection of the Genesis hit Abacab. Abacab. <laughs> <laughs> Ow! I remember when Abacab came out and Sting heard it, and we met at the Secret Policeman's other ball. Right. Um, he came up to me and said, listen, Phil, I love that single you got out at the moment, Abacab. It's really 60s, and, and it was funny because the, the Abacab itself was made up of three sections. Mm-hmm. Um, a was Booker T and the MGs feel. Like, da 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 yeah. right? Yeah. Then there was another bit called da 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 which was, in fact, Friday on my mind, the Easy Beats. Mm-hmm. And there was the C bit was like the Stones, which was on the fade out on the album. It's like a, the Stones sort of out of our heads feel rock yeah and um so we put those three things together and it had a 60s vibe to it and they're doing the same right. kind of thing it's the, it's the energy and melody of the 60s and uh that's really 
you know, that's that's my period. You know, some some people grew up in the seventies or the fifties. Some people like Elvis Presley and Bill Ailey. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I like the sixties. That's funny, and I love that album when it came out. But to me, Abacab sounds like none of those things that he just describes. But that shows you how inspiration works in the mind of the artist, even if it doesn't necessarily translate to the listener. I just love the song, but I didn't hear all those three different parts and all those three different influences in that song. So I remember hearing at the time that the title came from the chord structure. Well, as he just described in the clip, it had three segments, A, B, and C. But yes, I originally heard that it was A, B, A, C, A, B. Right? Is that what you mean? You mean structurally? Structurally, yeah. yeah. I thought it was like the chord, like yes, A major, what, B major kind of thing. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Uh, that I did hear that at the time that album came out, for sure. I don't know. Will mm-hmm. somebody please tell us? Sure. He speaks reverently of meeting Beatles producer George Martin. One thing that you were just talking about briefly uh, was uh, you did a benefit for uh, Prince Charles, and you mm-hmm. ran into George Martin, who obviously produced the Beatles. Yeah, we, we got together a group. Uh, there was me, Townsend, uh, Robert Plant. Uh, Kate Bush, mid-year. I mean, I, we just basically got together for, for a couple of rehearsals and rehearsed each other's tunes. Mm-hmm. And it was a benefit for Prince Charles. Not a benefit for Prince Charles. <laughs> he doesn't need anything else. <laughs> no. um, but it was a, a, a thing that he's organised to help up-and-coming, you know, young musicians or people get into music of, it, of all sorts. And uh, so we all... Um, we all got together to rehearse, and George Martin was actually the producer of the show. I mean, he was, in, you know, he was asked by by Charles, uh, him and Townsend, to organise the thing. Mm-hmm. And I I got to know him over that sort of a week period. And um, I just after the show, we all got very emotional, and he was saying how you know how he enjoyed what I did, and I was saying I just had to say because I mean since I was you know a teenager, the Beatles were the most important thing in my life, and uh, I even now I don't think there are any there's any records being made that have captured the spirit and the sound of a, of a period like he did and I said to him that uh, how big a fan I was of his and how how I think he's a genius you know which I, I do and uh, he went red you know he he was actually so overwhelmed that anybody 20 years on mm-hmm. would remember that I mean which is incredible to me because I mean I've got all the Beatles videos at home I mean everything oh, like yeah. home movie stuff everything and uh, you know it's just an important part of my life and he was that you know, nevertheless, still shocked that anybody remembered that period or even took him as part of being, you know, as an important part of it. Just want to acknowledge the guy doing this interview, a very good broadcaster, a very good friend, Gord James. Hey, Gordy. <laughs> Tom here. Phil talks with Gord about working with Robert Plant and a little misunderstanding. Is there any uh, thought of of getting together with Robert Plant and doing some things on yeah. the road, maybe while you've got a break? Um, I I asked him. We we talked after as soon as we finished the last one. We talked about the next one, uh, and then he wanted to get two albums under his belt before he went on the road. Right. He's doing his new one now, uh, so obviously I'm not on it because I'm here. <laughs> uh, Barry Barlow's doing it, and mm-hmm. um, uh, there's a bit of confusion because he thought I didn't want to do it because I was suggesting to him that he should get a drummer that he was could go on the road with. Mm-hmm. He thought I didn't want to do it, and I thought that he wanted to get a drummer that he could rely on all the time, whereas as opposed to me, I'm, I'm all doing different things all the time. So. Um, I think there's a bit of confusion there, so I'm not doing it, But um, and he wanted me to do it. So what I did say when I last spoke to him was that maybe sometime in the middle of the year when he comes out on the road, if Barry doesn't mind stepping over for a couple of weeks, I would dearly have to come on the road with him. Because, I mean, the, the, the guys in the band and myself and Robert, we get on like a you know, old band, you know, mm-hmm. as if we've been together for all our lives. So it would be a, a lot of fun. And I know Robert, 
and I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but he only really ever played with Bonham. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he'd had a lot of trouble with drummers, just other well, drummers that he might have sat in with or whatever, having the same kind of fire. Mm-hmm. And I, Bonham was a, a big uh, idol of mine. And um, I took a lot out of his book, you know, when I learned to play. And I think Robert saw that. And uh, we sort of really hit it off musically. So I hope it'll happen one day. Okay, so you can see how Robert Plant would have a little trouble with drummers, quote-unquote, after working with a monumental talent like John Bonham. And you can see how Phil, who was also a heavy drummer and a subtle one, would be a good fit for Robert. Mm-hmm. Still to come, the thing that unfairly led to the downfall of Phil Collins, plus an incredibly lively chat with the Foo Fighters. We have the Foo Fighters just seconds away, but first, let's continue our early 80s chat with Phil Collins. Christopher? Here he reacts to the suggestion that he is overexposed. Are you concerned about overexposure? I mean, you do you did Frida's album, yeah. Frida's album, which is an excellent album, mm. and uh, she's a, a fabulous musician, a fabulous singer, as, as we all know. Uh, you're on Robert Plant's album, uh, the Genesis stuff goes without saying, uh, your own solo stuff. Uh, and I imagine you mentioned John Martin, um, and sure. some people must be knocking down the door and saying, you know, Collins is hot, we want him, yeah. uh, can we use him? Have you thought about that? Well, I've, got, I've had lots of offers to do some production, mm-hmm. uh, but I've only got certain periods of the year I'm, I've got free, you know, because my own thing is obviously the, the most important thing to me. Genesis is a close second, but I'm the most important thing at the moment to me. Yeah, you know, overexposure, you know, it's funny, if you, if you don't do anything and you sit back in your house and you don't ever come out on the road, people say that you're a superstar, you know, and yet if you, if you keep busy, people say that you're spreading yourself too thin and overexposed. There's no happy medium for me. I mean, I, I just like the work. Yeah. So I just come out on the road and I come out and if anybody asks me to do something, if there's time, I'll do it. Um, I'm still flattered when people ask me to play on their albums, you know. I'm still sort of naive enough to get flattered by it. So, um... It could be overexposure. I mean, the, the 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 person that doesn't like me would say it's overexposure. The people that do like me would say it's nice to see me. You know? <laughs> I can't help it. Okay, Phil is 100% right here. He just wanted to work and have fun as a musician. And as we've discussed before, this criticism would blow up as the decade progressed, and it would deeply wound Phil Collins, which is a shame. I interviewed him at the end of the 80s, mm-hmm. right at the very end of my time at Much. And um, I found him to be a complete gentleman, mm-hmm. totally articulate, as, as, as you have suggested, but a little bit defensive. And maybe it come, you know, it came by that honestly. Yes. Well, you and I have talked about the fact that you know he's driving through. I think he was in Atlanta one weekend driving in his car, and he's listening to one of the big radio station there, and they said something like, "It's a Phil Collins free weekend." We're not going to play any Phil all weekend. So imagine that. Like, you're working your tail off. You're doing so much work. Um, You know, most of it, quality, quality work. You're so proud of your work as a musician. You take great pride in it. And all of a sudden, people are saying, yeah, we're we're never going to even play this guy again. That backlash hurt him so much. That's Phil Collins from the early 80s on Famous Lost Words. You can hear our previous chats with Phil on episodes 6 and 214 on the iHeartRadio app. Don't forget to rate and review our show. Great song from 1999, Food Fighters and Learn to Fly. Tom, this takes me back. A full-on mad moment from the Much Studios back in the day. July 8th, 1997, a little after my time, but you know... Once you've been there, you never forget the buzz when the band of the moment shows up 
and the streets are packed and all those faces are pressed against the window. Whether it was Duran Duran, Bowie, Madonna, or the Foo Fighters. We've got three short segments with George Strombolopoulos during his days at Much, talking with the band, mainly Dave Grohl, who always knows how to command the stage. Oh, just a warning. The fans in the background are full-on crazy, and it's both funny and a little bit irritating and weird. But stick with it, because trust me, this is worth hearing. Once these lunkheads stop screaming in the background, it really does get good. So, so bear with us. It'll be great. I promise. <laughs> well, and the band loves it. Yes. The interview starts on an odd note about the Foo Fighters being a carbon neutral band. Uh, something to note about this album is that the first CD by an American band to, uh, to be carbon neutral. I'm sorry. What did you say? The fans are going crazy. <laughs> I can't hear you above our rabid fans. They must have heard about Future Forests, first American band to make a carbon-neutral CD. Talk about that. Well, actually, this guy, we played this festival in uh, California called the Coachella Festival. And these two guys came up to me, and they sort of proposed this idea. They were starting this organization that was trying to... They were trying to get bands to use recycled paper with their stuff so as to... You know, be Apparently environmentally that, cool. That guy's here. Yeah, like those guys out there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and so basically, a, a little bit of the money from the record goes towards planting trees, which then reintroduces our atmosphere with the ingredients that would have thereby been destroyed with the making of the help. CD. It's just, it's just a way so we can keep our SUVs and not feel so damn guilty about awesome. it. Awesome. That's, That's really exactly what it is. Right. Yeah. Now we're At a carbon neutral day. band. Karma, 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 karma. You guys are all Here's on the same it. page musically, aren't you? I mean, within this band? All the same age? Page. All the same page musically? musically yeah. Uh, there are some differences. Taylor's kind of doing his own thing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I listen to a lot of stuff these guys don't listen to, but they listen to a lot of stuff I don't listen to. I mean, they're probably all three way more on the same page than I am with them. And does that ever, when you get into the studio, is that is that better for the recording process, knowing you know you guys come from different areas and have different sounds that you're into? I think it's good with any man if you bring different influences, you know? See, Nate's kind of the talking heads, oingo boingo, <laughs> over here. Stuck in the mid And you've got Shiflet with the... Uh, the uh, the punk rock. Yeah, he's strut. got the straight cat strut and maybe a little bit of clash in it. Taylor's bringing a little bit of uh, yes and early Genesis. Ooh, of all the things to bring. I know. <laughs> and what about you? Uh, I'm just all about um, Pink and Britney and uh, Christina and just uh, like you know, real music for real people. As in, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> Made by real people. A lot of people don't want to get into the, to play a hate a game, but as musicians and people who do this, and you listen to music, generally, are you pleased with what you're seeing out well, there? Well, you can't, like, you can't hate music, man. Like, you can't hate it. You could not go out and buy it and put it in your CD player, but, I mean, I have a soft spot for music that totally sucks. Like, I do. Like, I, I have a serious soft spot for, it, like, the, the most annoying pop song on the radio I turn it up when it comes on the radio. I'll listen to the whole thing. I kind of dig that kind of stuff. Is so. that because deep down you don't like yourself and you just want to punish yourself, or is it because you actually like it? 
It's because I had a horrible childhood yeah. and, you know, I'm not comfortable with myself and I just... You're not the kind of guys that walk around with security, which make you different than a lot of bands who sold That's because we kick ass, that's why. <laughs> Do your own security? Security? Who needs that? I'm not sure I've ever had a man crush before, Christopher, <laughs> but I'm just going to say it. If I did, it would be Dave Grohl. There, I've wow. said it. Don't hold it against me, but I really do like that guy in the way that he waves the flag for rock and roll, and he's so funny and friendly. And people who have met him say that he is genuinely that friendly. There you go. I've said it. Leave me alone. Well, um, now we have that on record, as the quotation goes. <laughs> and I make no apologies, Christopher. A discussion about the current meaning of punk rock follows. Yeah, but first, they talk about their new album, The Color and the Shape. Are you past the stage of being nervous when a record comes out? Um, I get more nervous to play a show than for a record to come out. Now, that's the best part. When your record comes out, you're finally, it's a relief, you know? Put all that work into something and it just takes forever, you know? Are you time warped? Is it weird for you to drive around everybody talking about a new Nirvana song and you hear it on the radio? Is that yeah, what? man, I got like, there's people put posters up all around my house and stuff. And so, yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a while. So, yeah, it's a little strange. But, you know, it was it was kind of inevitable that eventually that stuff would come out. We had so. no idea, man. We thought lawyers would take care of that forever. Yeah, me too, actually. Going back to Virginia, like staying in Virginia has got to keep things really on, on a cool tip for you because you're not caught up in all the other stuff. Yeah, and it's cool to go back there and record. And the previous record, right, if you talk, took a look at the idea of the fake versus the real. Yeah. You know, on this album, it just sounds like you got a little more subtext going on in there. Yeah. You know. Basically, I mean, the last album was just all about, it was more about building the studio than actually making a, it was like, okay, we're going to make a studio. Yeah. Let's go to the phone right now. We'll talk tomorrow about music with Andy. Andy, you got a question for the guys in the Foo Fighters? Yeah, guys, how's it going? Good, Andy. How are you? It's a great question, man. Fantastic. Yeah, the question is, oh, uh, when, you look at okay. punk, when you look at punk rock these days, you see bands like Pennywise and Foo Fighters on one side. On the other side, you see bands like uh, Blink-182 and, you know, Newfound Glory. And what do you guys think of the punk rock genre right now? And are you proud to be a part of it? Foo Fighters and Pennywise. <laughs> All right, then. Are we a part of it? I don't What's know. What's the difference between one side and the other? On side? <laughs> I don't know, man. We just played a really punk rock I mean, I call you guys a punk rock band for sure, right? Well, I wouldn't really call us a punk rock band. I mean, we were kind of raised listening to hardcore and punk rock and stuff. But um, I don't know. It's hard to... I don't know. I mean, would you call Husker Du a punk rock band? Not really. No, like you they think like a punk the rock band, you think a like, original alternative rock or something. Yeah, we're modern rock. We're not. Punk yeah, rock. we're modern. Yeah, we're, we're modern. modern rock. Adult whatever you guys are. Terminology right. What's that? I said whatever you guys are, you kick ass for sure. Thanks, dude. Thank you very much. People All right, guys, take it easy. People punk spend too much trying to figure it out. I think people overthink it. What the punk rock thing? It's music in general. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, especially you know questions like, well, what do you think about what's going on in in, in music right now? It's like. I mean, there's always good music out there, and you can always find it. It's just a matter; of, it fluctuates as to whether it's available to people or not. You know, so there's no reason to get to get bent out of shape about what's happening with it. For every Led Zeppelin, there was a Bay City Roller, so I guess it's always been that way. That's kind of the way it goes, I guess. That's a great point about people who say there's no good new music anymore. It still exists today, that argument, and I firmly believe there's tons of good new music, including guitar-based music, if that's what you talk about when you say that. You just have to know where to find it. So look, and I guarantee that even if you're a hardcore classic rock fan, you will find good new music that appeals to you. I'm just going to say it. There you go. I've said two things now that are 
controversial, Christopher. <laughs> I think you're on pretty safe ground there. Um, I love that quote, for every Led Zeppelin, there's a Bay City Rollers. <laughs> love that. Love that. Yeah. Dave talks about the virtues of playing acoustically. The more stripped down it is, the, the easier, you know? Like, if you're, when you're blaring loud with the band or whatever, sometimes it gets, it's just total chaos, you know? Which is awesome. It's, that's fun in itself. But, and then there's other times where, you know, we did the bridge school benefit thing with Neil Young and we played acoustic and it was great, man. That's kind of fun because you can hear each other play and, you know, it's nice. It's like, oh, that's what that bass sounds like. Oh, that's what my band sounds like. Cool. Wonderful. There you go. Foo Fighters in conversation with George Strombolopoulos in 1997. By the way, I'm not sure if you heard this, but uh, several weeks ago, there was an all-star cover of the Foo Fighters song Times Like These done as a ballad and an all-star rendition mm. and it is sensational. Times Like These all-star lineup the Foo Fighters song and it is exceptional. I recommend highly recommend that you give that a listen. I will look for it. I love that song. We started season five a few weeks ago with a couple of episodes exclusively about great Canadian songs, and we've promised to drop in more songs based on your requests. What song is it this time, Christopher? This is Andy Kim, who, of course, also was a member of the Archies. Andy almost sounds like a, a motivational speaker as he unspools the unlikely story behind one of his biggest hits. Rock Me Gently wrote the song. It wasn't on a label. There's no one around to produce it, so I produced it. And when I tried to get a record deal, mm -hmm. nobody wanted it. So I came back to Canada and started my own record company called Ice and put it out on my own. And I think that that's a lesson that, that everybody who has a dream needs to know. Mm -hmm. It's not about them. It's about you. What are you doing? What is your dream and what are you doing about it? Not, oh, they said no. about a huge hit for Andy Kim Rock Me Gently from 1974 Tom that's Lighthouse from 1972 and Sunny Days talk about an irresistible groove that's Woo. right yep and we've got Skip Prokop from the band, the leader of the band, telling the incredibly charming story about an equally charming song that can still bring the sunshine all these years later. That's a funny story that I've told before, but it's true. It was uh, um, that was in the summer. It was like two summers ago, and I thought I was going to get two weeks holidays. The band took two weeks holidays, and uh, uh, Jimmy, we had all the stuff selected that we were going to record, and Jimmy said, "Well, I think you better write a few more things because just so we have some extra things." And it was so hot, man. It was like about 89, 92 degrees, something like that. And I was sitting out in the backyard in Shannon's pool, you know, <laughs> you know those little pools. And I was sitting on the edge with my guitar and a TV table, you know, so I could write because I had it was so hot. And I was just fooling around with that, you know, like it's like a, it's like an old Benny Goodman or. Uh, you know, that bump, dun, 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 you know, that kind of thing, right? I was fooling around with that, and I got the idea, and naturally the day being as hot as it was and all that, that just led to, you know, the, the lyric idea, and it, it just, it, that was one of those songs that just kind of popped out, you know, every once in a while you write something like that, it just goes clunk, and there it is. And I thought, I enjoyed it, you know, and I was amazed when Jimmy picked it, you know, to, to be a, uh, 
on the album, and then we went to the rehearsal hall, and I played it for the guys. They flipped. So he said, "Wow, that's a fun song, man. Yeah, this is this ought to be really like this would be a laugh, man, to do, right? And usually, you know, you're spending hours coming up with an arrangement where." Everything just went click, fell into place like the nucleus. We had to tune down two times through the tune. Every there was not, there's not that much you can do in that kind of tune except play a rhythm and just cook along with it, you know. And the tune just went boom. Sitting stoned alone in my backyard, asking myself, why should I work so hard? Sitting dreaming about the days to come, half a dress just soaking up the sun. That is great. A song that's literally created in the moment. And, you know, the, the opening line is pretty cool. Sitting stoned alone in my backyard, asking myself, why should I work so hard? That just describes the moment. Yeah. Great song from 1972 that just sparkled out of the radio that year. Sunny Days from Lighthouse. So Christopher is currently in California, and I am currently near Toronto. But, Christopher, get this. I've been doing a little bit of research on our listeners and where they're from. Check this out. This is a list of the different countries in which we have listeners of famous lost words, okay? Canada, the United States, the UK, Australia, Germany, Argentina, France, Hungary, Singapore, Belgium, Sweden, Austria, Brazil, Chile, Ireland, Costa Rica, Pakistan, Sweden, Italy, Mexico, China, Czech Republic, Colombia, Ecuador, Hong Kong, Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Peru, Thailand, United Arab Emirates, Paraguay, and South Korea. Hello, Ecuador! That's right. It's <laughs> a lot of countries. And it makes us really proud because we've been doing this show for a few years. And obviously, if you're listening right now, you're supporting the show. And another way to support the show is simply to listen to past episodes if you haven't already heard them and tell all your friends. Get on Twitter, share our Twitter feeds, go on Facebook at Famous Lost Words and help us out because then more people listen and it just brings joy to everybody, including us. Tom, so far this season, we have featured the stories behind about two dozen great Canadian songs. And I'm talking about just memorable Canadiana, from American Woman to Tom Sawyer, from Call Me Maybe to In My Blood, which is amazing because we use the audio of the artists themselves talking about the songs as they're being released. Now, the upside of our archive is that we actually have the audio. The downside is that while we have interviews for hundreds of Canadian artists, most of them don't talk about specific songs, so what you're going to hear is what we got. Now, that being said, it would be a shame not to acknowledge at least a number of the songs that are missing. And we're no, we know they're missing because we've heard from you. Yeah, absolutely, Christopher. I'd like to give a good example. So, we have a 1987 interview with Blue Rodeo as they were releasing their album, Outskirts. That's the album with Try on it. And they talk right. about releasing the singles from that album. But do you know what? They don't even talk about Try, because at that point, I don't even think it occurred to anyone to release it as a single, because it probably, the people in the band and their management probably didn't think it really represented the band, or they didn't think it would suit the top 40 at the time. Now, let's think about that. Like, 1987, 
and they don't think it's going to suit the charts, and they're kind of right because their charts were all over the place at that time. And yet here comes this song with a very, very soft strum of a guitar at the very beginning and this plaintive vocal, and of course it becomes a top 40 classic, uh, the song that uh, Blue Rodeo is best known for. Well, and stylistically, they were right. They, yes. It was extremely different from from the rest of their works, if you like. Uh, I mean, right. they even got R&B play on that. Can you imagine that? It's funny that you mentioned that, but they wrote that song, Jim Cuddy wrote that song as kind of an R&B-flavored song originally, and then they turned it into a ballad. So, if you want to know why your favorite Canadian song has not been profiled yet, then there's your reason. Either that, or I just don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Truth in advertising, folks. There you go. (laughs) Okay, Christopher, so let's actually talk about some great Canadian songs for a minute, and perhaps we can tell the story behind those hits. Rise Up by Parachute Club, to me, is a classic for so many reasons. It was emblematic of the spirit of the times, and that adds another element. It wasn't just a great song and a great performance and a hit record. It also was, I think, a symbol for change in what was happening in the Canadian music scene, both in terms of the visuals, in terms of the membership of the band, and the themes that they were talking about in their music. So that, that's one of my favorites. You know, let me jump in here because we've had people ask yeah. about Tragically Hip. I want to tell the story about one of their songs. And of course, there's so many hip songs to choose from. 50 Mission Cap, Grace 2, Courage, Bob Cajun, great song, Bob Cajun. Ahead by a century. But let's focus on one of their early hits. All right. That's New Orleans is Sinking, Tragically Hip from 1989. It went to number one on the Canadian charts and is a mainstay on Canadian radio. And for years, it was the number one Canadian song from the 1980s in terms of legal downloads. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, the cool thing about that song is how it spun off into other songs, especially in live performances when Gord Downey <laughs> would tell some sort yeah. of strange, compelling story. You know this, right? The fam- There's the famous killer whale tank story where he imagines that he works as a cleaner in a killer whale tank. So there's that... <laughs> that whole thing. And it is bizarre, and it is very interesting. But once again, it is very bizarre. But it has kind of Gord's stamp of his unusual personality in it, too. But when the hip played that song, they would workshop other songs within the body of New Orleans is Sinking, right? The middle section, they would just uh, jam on stage and actually work out other songs while they were playing in concert, including the song <laughs> Nautical Disaster, and even their biggest pop hit, Ahead by a Century. It actually it actually evolved out of a jam session from the middle of playing one song, and that was New Orleans is Sinking. New Orleans is Sinking, man, and I don't wanna swim. The tragically hip New Orleans is Sinking from 1989. Great song, and there's the story behind it. Still sounds great, and that mm-hmm. is a story that I did not know, so thank mm-hmm. you for that. No problem. All right, so here's a song that might be, I don't know, for some people a little controversial to be included on this list, but I love the song Working for the Weekend by <laughs> Lover Boy. It's just one of those fist-pumping anthems that I dare you not to sing along to when you hear it. Yeah. And if you aren't singing along, somewhere inside your body is singing along, and you just don't want to admit it. That's really what's going on here. And I talked to Mike Reno when I was writing the, the Much Music book, but um, we were talking about working for the weekend, and I said, you know, 
the thing about that song to me is that it's like you think the chorus is done um, and then no, there's another chorus. It's like you just, <laughs> they just, they get stacked upon one another in somewhat the same way that um, Mutt Lang does with, um, you know, songs for Shania or sure. Def Leppard, those kinds of things. Yes. And Mike said, oh yeah. He said, working with Paul, he said, we write the song. He goes away and messes with it. I come back a week later and I don't recognize it. <laughs> and he, he he described him as a Frankenstein songwriter who puts together all sorts of parts and, and pieces from different disparate sources to make the finished product. But in this case, the finished product was a pretty darn great song. And it is. It is a very good song. And it is. it does have the best intro with Cowbell of any song. Let's have a listen to that. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? Just that cranking cowbell <laughs> would make Will Ferrell very happy. Working for the weekend, lover boy. So many great songs. Brian Adams, Summer of 69 and Run to You still sound amazing on the radio. They're so well done and they're so well played. And of course, Brian is amazing, uh, you know, singing along to those songs. Um, one of my favorite kind of one-hit wonders, at least in terms of American success, but they had a few hits in Canada for sure, is the five-man electrical band with the song Signs. That was like a hippie Oh, I was anthem. wondering if you were going to mention that one. <laughs> well, you know, Christopher, it really was almost like a perfect hippie anthem at the time, but it really was about, about including everybody, no matter what religion they were, no matter what they looked like, whether they had long hair or short hair. It was a great great song. What about Bruce Coburn? There's, uh, you know, Lovers in a Dangerous Time with that great line, gonna kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. Like, that is one of the all-time great mm. single lyrics that you'll you'll ever hear. And we can go to the other end of the spectrum, not to knock him as a songwriter, but the song um, Informer by Snow. What a great, fun song that was at the time when that came out in the early 90s. And it also, it helped usher in uh, the Canadian hip-hop scene along with uh, Let Your Backbone Slide by Maestro, uh, who is great. And by the way, we need to talk to Wes uh, one of these days on the show, because there's a person who is a real pioneer in Canadian music. So we don't want to forget him. Yeah, for sure. And how about the song that launched Jan Arden's career, uh, Insensitive, and one of the few songs she recorded that she didn't write, which was yeah. written by uh, Anne Laurie, wonderful That's songwriter. Right. That's right. And it's funny, because the very first time I interviewed Jan, I said, Jan, who's the guy that you wrote about an Insensitive, and, and where can I find him and knock his head off, right? Cause, <laughs> and she said, well, Tom... <laughs> I didn't write that one, but thank you for your chivalry. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, you named, as I recall, was it the guest who was an American woman? Did you decide that was the greatest Canadian single song of all time? Yes, I did. And you caught me by surprise because I wasn't ready. I, I hadn't had time to really think about this. Okay. So I'm just going to tell you that I've thought about it. Yes. And for me, it's helpless. Oh, okay, Neil Young, helpless. Okay, hang on, let's play a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. There is a town in North Ontario Stream comfort memory despair From 1970, Neil Young with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and Helpless, great song, and that's Christopher's Choice for the greatest Canadian song of all time. Also, what about You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette? Like, like phenomenal groundbreaking song that yeah. that blew up you know that whole album jagged little pill from 1995 can't believe it was 25 years ago 
Okay, Christopher, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention um, other artists like The Weeknd, who have, had, who have had great success in the last few years. Drake, who has had a profound effect on the charts, breaking records even by the Beatles in the last few years. And Tom, what about, you can dance if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> the Safety Dance by Men Without Hats. Oh, Christopher, I cannot forget Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. There are so many different versions of that song. He wrote at least 80 verses over four years for that song. (laughs) Oh, man. He found himself, like, experimenting. (laughs) I heard that shiver as a songwriter. I cannot imagine what that would be like. At one point, he found himself on the floor of a New York hotel in his underwear, banging his head on the floor in frustration because he couldn't finish Hallelujah. And I think one of the definitive versions of that song uh, was Katie Lang live at the 2010, I think it was, Juno Awards. A stunning performance. And I think you saw her do it at a songwriting award too. She would bring down the house. Yeah, breathtaking performance. Well, that does it for this week. Let us know which artists and songs you'd like to hear about. I know we've had a lot of requests for one-hit wonders, and we'll have to see if we can put together an entire show about those artists and their big songs. Famous Lost Words is produced by the great Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. Remember, there are 68 previous and very binge-worthy episodes of Famous Lost Words. Check them out on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. <laughs>